talk a little bit and it'll and then we'll go into the message and for those of you who are you know you don't enjoy this just sit tight um i wanted to share in relations to proverbs 3 6 and it says in all thy ways acknowledge the lord and he will direct your paths in all ways what does all mean does that mean voting Yes? Always. And always acknowledge the Lord. He'll make your path straight. We think, well, what, what, what do Christians have to do with voting and why would the pastor become political? It's, it's interesting that in the last 50 years, America um, has somehow inculcated the populace to think that the pulpit is not a place to talk about our civic responsibility. And, and even some of you right now, just the fact that I'm talking, you're struggling with it which tells me that you have, you have been absolutely formatted to think this way. And it's tragic. It really is. For the first 200 and something years in the history of this country, uh, the pulpits in America were the place where you would, you would be politically educated to vote your conscience, understanding that our founding fathers established a representative form of government so that we would represent the Lord in all that we would do. You vote your conscience. And people say, well, you have to separate politics and religion. They're, they're inseparable. The idea is we, want, we, we don't want to create a vacuum based on the absence of our representation of that for which we believe. And so some of you are struggling with it. A lot of you are younger because this is what you've been, this is what you've, you've been fed. And, and you, you're, you're stuck with that. And it's this repeating reel in your head that you, you heard in some class. Well, I just have to tell you, when, when people say there's a separation of church and state, even that, even that, separation of church and state... That was fed to you. It's regurgitated. It's nowhere in the founding fathers' documents, anywhere. Period. Well, what about the letter to the you know Jefferson to the Danbury, you know Baptist Convention? It's not even there. It's an invisible wall of separation, and it's not even pertaining to the issue for which you espouse. Our our founding fathers wanted to see us in action, our love for the Lord in action in representing the the government. And so this is, this is where we are, and some of you are struggling with it, and I, 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 I've got a huge curve to fix here, and, and some of you are going to be so offended you're going to leave, but that's still a responsibility I have before the Lord. I'm going to do before the Lord what I'm called to do, and if, and if that offends you and you need to go, I get it. There's other churches that aren't going to talk politics. Go ahead. I, I will miss you, though, and I, and I think you're going to be, um, yeah, you're going to be starved. Hosea 8 says, uh, if you read Hosea 8, verses 1 through 4, uh, basically it's, it's, uh, it's, it's God's rebuke of Israel for choosing kings and princes without his approval. And if you think that God doesn't work in the affairs of men, you're wrong. Deuteronomy 7, uh, 14 on, says that God, in a sense, gives Israel the standards for choosing a king. And we're supposed to know what those standards are. Um, some folks are saying, Pastor, who you voting for? Now, b- before I go any further, let me qualify Romans 14.4, very important. Romans 14.4, I'm going to share my views with you, but I do not claim that my views should control yours. I, I strive to seek biblical conclusions in everything that I do. I, I do my best, as it says in 2 Timothy 2.15, to study, to show myself approved unto God, a workman need, my, need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And, and I, I'm going to share with you conclusions I've reached about this upcoming election. Some of you will be offended, and others of you will be offended. <laughs> but I will say this, Romans 14.4, uh, who are you to judge another man's servant? Ultimately, when you go into the voting booth, it's between you and the Lord. Now, I'm going to, as I do every Sunday, educate you in the Word. That's what I do. I have the gift of teaching and the gift of preaching. God entrusted it to me, and I'm going to exercise it. And I would say that there are many in this room who feel compelled to vote for Mitt Romney because uh, the alternative is so frightful to them. There are others that, and I would say probably not as many, who uh, think that voting for the lesser of two evils is a grievous sin. And you would conclude the matter of conscience, and you can't vote for either candidate. But as it says in Romans 14.4, who am I to judge another man's servant? I would just simply say, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Don't, don't attack another person for the sake of the fact that they feel compelled by their conscience to do one or another. Understand that. 
Now, I also want to qualify that there's a difference between endorsing a candidate and voting for a candidate. Now, if, if you've seen in the newspaper, I have endorsed a candidate for school board, Tony Doles. And I've sat with him, I've vetted him, I asked him tough questions, I asked him about his faith, about his positions of all kinds of things, and I, I feel strongly to endorse this candidate for school board. Now, that being said, I, I will endorse a candidate, but it's going to be based on one of four principles. And the four principles basically are, I look if, if number one, that that person is exceptionally supportive of my views, which I believe are biblical as I've sought to honor the Lord. The second category that I look for when I talk with somebody or review what they've written or listen to what they've said is those who would listen to my views, those who would listen to my views. The third category that I observe is those who are indifferent to my views. They could care less about my views. And then the fourth category is those who are openly hostile to my views. Now I'll work with somebody who's in category one or category two. If you're category one all the way across the board, I'll endorse you. If you've got twos in there, I may vote for you, but I'm not going to endorse you. And I only endorse those candidates who fit all category one in my views. I will say, based on that, there is no candidate for president of the United States, Republican, Democrat, Independent, or write-in that I am going to endorse. Now, some of you are offended. Some of you want me to toe a Republican position. I refuse to. Some of you are Democrats are going to be upset with the person I'm going to choose to vote for. But I wanted to point out why I've come to this conclusion as I've struggled before the word of the Lord. I would say for both candidates for president, Republican or Democrat, both men are good family men. They're good husbands. They're good fathers. I can see that. But I'm looking, again, regarding categories. Does a candidate enthusiastically agree with my positions? Or is the candidate willing to listen to my positions? Or is a candidate indifferent to my positions? Or is a candidate openly hostile to my positions? And I would say that there isn't a single candidate who fits category number one, whether write-in or representing one of the major parties. Now, some of you are saying, well, Pastor, what's that going to do for Christendom? We have to work together. I agree. There's a pragmatic approach, and some of you are saying, well, how can you look at a pragmatic approach? I would just simply say, look at Luke 14. The Lord wants us to use all of our faculties in making decisions. Now, there's some things that we need to come to understand as evangelical Christians in the United States of America. And, it's, and it's, it's tragic, but we're a minority. We are a minority. We're the largest minority in America, but we're also one of the most apathetic minorities in America. Half of the evangelical Christians in the United States, of the 70 million, half of them are registered to vote. And of the half that are registered to vote, only half of those vote. You contrast that with 3% of our population, which would be considered the homosexual community, and over 90% of them are registered to vote, and of the 90% that are registered to vote, 90% of them vote. They understand coalition. They understand how to work together as a minority to accomplish their purposes, and they've been very effective. The Christian community stinks at this. We're awful. Now, there's some components to a pragmatic assessment of a situation, especially when you're in a, a minority and you're wanting to accomplish things in a, in a nation of a representative form of government. And, and there's many who would basically share my political beliefs, and this is one of the reasons why we struggle. There are many in this room who would share my, my, my religious beliefs, but you have a significant gap in your worldview because of your lack of training. You just don't understand politics or how they operate in a worldview. You believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, but you haven't done your homework and you don't hold a worldview. You have different things that, that influence you in the way that you approach a worldview. There are many others that would have significant differences in your worldview because you've listened to voices that are not based on biblical presuppositions. You're a Christian, but you listen to other things that, that, that establish your, your presuppositions and they're not biblical. You, 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 you've been saved by grace and, and you've been born into the kingdom of God, but that's about as far as you've gone. There's a great number of people who are likely to hold my worldview, but you're not registered to vote. And if you're registered to vote, you're indifferent to actually voting, which negates you. You have no voice. You're apathetic. You may hold my worldview, but you don't vote or you're not registered to vote. And where is that problem come from? Christians, especially pastors, are responsible for these factors that have significantly diminished our potential influence in an election. 
If Christians were reaching our own with proper training and if our own actively participated, we'd be a much more powerful force in politics. And, and even some of you, as I say that, are nauseated by it, frustrated by it. I get it. I sat in your seat one time. I get it. But you have been duped. We need to face the fact that we are a minority. And thus, we, can't, we, we cannot make alliances with people who are... Uh, we, we can make, uh, excuse me, if we cannot make alliances with people who are open to working with us, then we're doomed to lose everything that is important to us. Let me repeat that. If we cannot make alliances with people who are open to working with us, then we are doomed to lose everything that is important to us. How many people are happy for the issue of traditional marriage in Proposition 8? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Thank a Mormon. Christians were apathetic and immobile, and just they're paralyzed. Had it not been for the Mormon church, there would not have been the significant effect on that proposition. So that is the idea of a minority working together in a coalition or an alliance. As a dedicated minority group, we can accomplish our highest public policy goals if we are properly engaged in the rough and tumble world of coalition politics. Again, let, let me share with you, my sister who's a lesbian has, has shown me how effective her coalition is. And she, she declares to me, she says, Rob, you're an evangelical pastor and we are dominating you and we will continue to dominate you. And even though we have a small percentage of the American population, we know how to work with others and Christians don't. And we will get our agenda through while you sit apathetic in your pews. And they have proven this idea. Now, it's pretty clear that we can be successful if we're willing to work with two kinds of politicians. Those who fully embrace our ideas and those who are willing to listen to our, our, our ideas. If we demand, and listen, if we demand that every candidate become one of us in order to work with them, we're in trouble. Pol uh, political success comes when we can work with our kind of people and those who will listen to, uh, to us. Now, I love what this one person writes. He says, I wish we were the majority, but we still have to tackle that problem on another day. For now, we'll just say it's going to take a revolution among pastors to turn our, our minority into a majority and that we could become. We are a minority and we have to act like a smart minority aiming for success rather than a misguided minority aiming for an all or nothing strategy. That's devastating. You're going to be all alone on your little island and nobody cares. And then um, I wanted to share with you in regards to those four categories, those who are for what I believe in, those who will listen to what I believe in, those who are apathetic to what I believe in, and those who are hostile to what I believe in. And in regards to that, I want to share with you those main issues as an evangelical, fundamentalist, right wing, whatever you want to label me, basically a believer of the Bible, what are major issues to me? in our political arena and in our nation today. The right to life. I, I, we can agree and disagree on a number of things as Christians, but there is no way biblically that you can spin, format, warp or woof any, any position other than it is a baby in the world. Scripture makes it abundantly clear. It's not a blob of tissue. It's a human being. It can't be anything else. The scripture declares it. Before you were born, I knew you. I knitted you together in your mother's womb. You, 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 not it, you. Our founding fathers, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You don't have life. Liberty and happiness is fruitless and worthless. And, and, and the scriptures declare right to life. And, and we've gone over this before, and, we, and, and, and the position of people that, that are opposing uh, the right to life for those who would say it's not a, a, a viable human being. And you say, well, why? Well, because it's too small. So you're telling me that size is that which makes it not a human being. Yes. So you're telling me that a smaller person is less valuable than a larger person? Oh, no, no, no. I'm not saying that. Well, that's what you're saying. Well, no, it's, 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 um, it's the idea that it's, 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 it's environment. It's environment. No, no, let's, let's, let's back up. It's its level of development. It's, it's not fully developed into a human being. It's not fully developed into a human being. 
Oh, so it's less valuable than a normal human being because it's not fully developed? Yes. So you're telling me that a toddler who is not fully an adolescent is less valuable than a fully grown adult? No, I'm not saying that. Well, no, that's what you're saying. Well, it's its environment. It's in the womb. That's why it's not a human being. So you're telling me an environment dictates whether you're valuable or not. I was more valuable at home than I am behind the pulpit. Well, no, no, I'm not saying that. No, that's what you're saying. It doesn't make any sense. Well, it's its degree of dependence. It's dependent upon the mother. That's why it's not a human being. Oh, so you're telling me that somebody who is dependent upon insulin is less valuable than me who's not dependent on insulin. It doesn't work. It's a baby. It's a human being. And we must fight vehemently for the lives of these children. You know, the Christian community was apathetic to to the slave trade. More than 70% of Americans believe slavery was legitimate in America into the 1860s. Nobody believed that we could abolish it on the, on the landscape. 650,000 people died on the field of battle to remove the warp and the woof of slavery in the fabric of America. And raise your hand if you think we need to go back to slavery. We need to change our mindset. Nazis called Jews rats. You call a baby a thing. But God's word declares otherwise. Human beings and they must be protected. Now, some of you have been inculcated and and educated through the system where you're offended by what I'm saying, but you're a Christian now. Some of you aren't and I understand. We'll talk later and we'll reason together. But for those of you who are Christians, your scriptures make it abundantly clear that's a baby. Period. Now, I'm not to say that if you have a, if you've had an abortion that you're that you're you're you know to be condemned in the body of Christ. Every single person in this room has been affected by abortion. Everyone. I'm not here to dump on you in relation to that. My life's been affected by it. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All I'm here to say is let's reason together. The reality is this is what we've been doing. Now let's do what God wants us to do. That that baby needs to be protected. So. In regards to a presidential candidate, in the four categories, do they hold to my position? Will they listen to my position? Are they indifferent to my position? Are they hostile to my position? Whether you're Democrat or Republican, it's irrelevant to me. Like I said, I'm going to offend both of you today. But I don't seek to offend. I seek to educate you. Just put it aside for a moment and listen. President Barack Obama is openly hostile to the right to life position. He believes in third trimester abortions. He's fully supportive of Planned Parenthood. He is fighting the Christian position every step of the way in regards to abortion. That is unconscionable to me, and I cannot vote for that man. I just can't do it, and I never will. Wait, wait. Those of you who are clapping, I'm going to get to you. (laughs) Mitt Romney has a checkered past on this issue. He claims that he has been converted to the pro-life position, but I, I have to tell you, I don't feel convinced of it, that he's fully converted. He's talking pro-life. He's taken a pro-life position. But when I look at some of the things that he did in Massachusetts and who he supported in Massachusetts, I, I'm waiting to see the actions of his conversion. Now, I will say, at a minimum, at a minimum, I think I can count on him to keep his pragmatic position until November 2016 for re-election. He's not going to appeal to a voting populace and then negate them and expect to be re-elected. He knows how important a pro-life position is to try to get elected. Now, whether he's playing a game or whether he's sincere is to be determined, but I will say he's open to listening to my position, so I give him a category two, not a one. He's a two. Does not make him my enemy. I think it's fair to say that he'll listen to my pro-life position. And uh, in that case... I'm good with it. I wish for more. The other area that's important to me is the sanctity of marriage, Defense of Marriage Act, and same-sex issues. And I'll cover a local candidate before we're finished and we'll get into the study. Be patient. Barack Obama, again, is in open war against my values in this position. Now, he supports gay marriage, 
his Defense of Marriage Act. It seems as though he wants that repealed. All that he's been doing while he's been in office has been the opposite of what I stand for. He's in direct opposition to what, what I stand and what I believe the scriptures stand for. Mitt Romney has a very troubling record on this issue. So troubling that I have a difficult time believing that he is even a two on this issue. Peter Singer is largest supporter, is one of the largest funders of the homosexual movement. Um, his appointments have been as such, the Republican Party and the, and the log cabin Republicans. This is, a, this is probably the, the largest troubling area for me with, with Mitt Romney. He says he's against same-sex marriage, but his rhetoric and his record is so mixed on homosexual rights that it's hard to know what to expect. I don't know what to expect. I have to be careful because in the next four years, if he's elected, you're going to come to me and say, look what he did. So that's why I have to hold back my endorsement of him. I conclude that he's somewhere between a two listening to us and a three. He may be indifferent to us. But I will say on the third issue, religious freedom, religious freedom. I believe President Barack Obama, by his actions and by his, by his uh, acts of office, he's, he's, he's four or three for three in these issues. He is an enemy of religious liberty. Uh, the fact that our chaplains can no longer say in Jesus' name, uh, the fact that the Catholic Church is suing the government in regards to health care and, and being forced to do abortions if they're to receive any help in that regard, Mitt Romney, this is his strongest place for me as a Christian. I believe he supports religious liberty in a robust fashion. I'd give him a one. I, I believe that he strongly supports religious freedom, religious liberty. However, some people would disagree with some of the things he, he did in Massachusetts, but those are few and far between. A lot of you say, well, what about the economy? You know what? Let's get to the main issues in relation to what God desires. Now, the Bible says a, a, a borrower is a slave to the lender, and debt is immoral, and I agree, it's awful. And I do believe that he's a better businessman, but I, I'm, I'm waiting to see if, if he's big government. But for three issues, the defense of marriage, pro-life, and religious liberty, uh, I, it, Mitt Romney is, is a, a two or three at best in, in the marriage issue. He's... He's probably a one in religious freedom, and, and he's a two on the abortion issue, a one or a two on the abortion issue. All that to simply say this, though I do not endorse Mitt Romney, I will vote for him. I will vote for him. I've managed to offend all of you. Pretty successful, yes? There's one other thing I want to cover, and then we'll move on. I'm troubled by a local candidate for the 44th Assembly District. I've made calls to his office. I've asked for a response. I've been ignored, as have the other pastors in this community, to the best of my knowledge. His name is Jeff Carell. He is a Republican for the 44th Assembly. He represents us in the State Assembly. And on AB 1856, which was the indoctrination or the re-education of foster parents for the homosexual agenda, he is the only Republican to have voted yes. I asked for a response from him. I got none. And, and I, I'm, I'm appalled by it. I'm frustrated. I'm waiting to see if he's going to respond. But at this point, on my ballot, it is blank. In regards to any of the ballot issues, if you want some question or insights tonight, I will have available um, an assistance guide for you if you want it. It'll be a voter guide. And you can do with it as you please. And uh, that's one Christian struggling through the election out loud. Okay? Let's get into the Word. Uh, will you pass out the Bibles, fellas? And uh, if you have your Bibles, we're in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Now, while you're turning to Ephesians chapter 6, will you also go to Hebrews chapter 11? Hebrews chapter 11. Ephesians 6, Hebrews chapter 11. Ephesians 6, Hebrews chapter 11. Everybody got a Bible there? Let me get my notes situated here. All right. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, if you would. 
And then we can sit for the word of the teacher. One we honor, the other we tolerate. Ephesians chapter 6, going through the armor of God. I'm going to pick up at verse 10 just to refresh us on the passage we've been covering. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Let me stop for a minute. For those of you going, you know, Pastor, we've been taking so long on a short portion of Scripture. I thought Calvary Chapel was expositional and we go verse by verse. It seems so topical. We're doing one verse. On Sundays, there are times where I'll be topical, but they'll be in context. If you want expositional study in a deep manner, come Wednesday nights. We started in Genesis and we're going all the way through the Bible. Right now we're in Nehemiah, I'm digging it. Now we'll, we'll, we'll start gaining traction as soon as I get through the armor of God, so hang in there. All right, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, with that understanding, therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, we've covered that. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, we covered that. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, we covered that last week. In verse 16, above all, above all, above all, those are two good words. We really need to pay attention to this next one. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. And while you're there, I want to read to you 1 John 5, 4. 1 John 5, 4, listen to the word of the Lord. For whoever is born of God, whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So the shield of faith, our faith is what overcomes the world. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, picking up at verse 1. What is faith? Faith, faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Drop over to verse 8. By faith, Abraham believed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars in the sky and multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And so we're going to stop there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, it says in Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God, Romans 14. Lord, we find out in, in Hebrews what faith is. We also know it's the only thing that helps us to overcome the world. And now we're to hear this morning that we're to, we're to have this shield of faith, that above all, we're to take that shield of faith that would enable us to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Lord, I love what the old preacher said that faith was. It's a wonderful definition. Faith is simply taking God at his word. And so, Lord, I ask today that you'd minister to us through your word, establish our faith, that we would be able to have this powerful shield to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Bless us, Lord, as we undertake this study as the body of Christ. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As we put in context Ephesians 6, once again, going through the armor of God, and it says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's very clear to us, it's very clear to us as Christians that the nature of our warfare is spiritual. The nature of our warfare is spiritual. That's why we need the belt of truth. That's why we need the breastplate of righteousness. That's why we need the shoes of peace, that this is a spiritual warfare. Second Corinthians 10.14 says, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God for pulling down strongholds. 
And so we are battling against the spiritual forces of darkness. It's not so much a physical battle. But here's the thing that Satan wants nothing more than to somehow draw us into a physical conflict with him. Satan wants nothing more than to draw us into a physical conflict with him. And this is what is so interesting to me during the political season, because the church is so slow to learn this, this, this spiritual battle that God wants to equip us for and the physical battle that Satan wants to drag us into. People are always seeking to mobilize the church for political purposes, political action groups. And those people never show up at prayer meetings. Or I should say seldom. What we do must primarily be spiritual first and the byproduct is political. We should be on our knees. I, 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 don't, I don't want a pamphlet from you. I don't want any voter guide from you. I want to see you, see you at the prayer meetings. Now, some of you can't make the prayer meetings and I know you engage with us in prayer. I get that. And I've met some wonderful saints in the Lord who are fervently praying that don't drive at night. Praise God. And I receive from them correction and exhortation and encouragement and I'm blessed by them. I was taken to lunch by two lovely ladies that just blessed my socks off. And, and, and I, I know that coming at night to the prayer meetings is very difficult for them. I'm so encouraged. And they have a huge influence in my life because I know their love for the Lord and their desire to see God be glorified in our nation. But I think about this idea that people are always trying to develop strategies by which they might draw our attention to their cause. I, I get all kinds of you know, pamphlets and all kinds of things that come across my desk. People want me to read books. And what's amazing to me is they'll give me a book to read that they themselves haven't read, as though I'm supposed to somehow discern it for them and then give it back to them. You do it. I got books stacked up so high people haven't read that they hand to me. You read them. And then you tell me if it's worth something I should read. I got plenty to do on my own. But Satan wants to control us in, in regards to a physical battle, and he wants us to think that this is the only way we can win. And he makes us so busy that we don't have time to seek the Lord in prayer. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. One man and God constitutes a majority. The reason why the early church was so powerful is they prayed. They sought the Lord. They waited upon the Lord. We're going through the book of Nehemiah, and he goes and he assesses Jerusalem, and it's in shambles. It's in shambles. And when he went and he told the king, Artaxerxes, and his heart was broken, and he was, he was mourning, and he was weeping. And the king said, why are you so sad? Before he ever approached the king from Kislev to Nisan, it was four months from December to April, his heart was broken. But you know what he did for four months? He prayed before he ever even approached the king to resolve the issue. And it was urgent. People were dying. There was a struggle. But he's on his knees praying. As a result, when he goes before the king, the king says, why are you sad? He tells him, he opens up all kinds of resources for him, sends an armed guard unit, gives him access to all the forests to build, and, and he, he's, he's totally blessed beyond measure. This is a man who prays. This is a man who's changing his community. This is a man who's building walls, and how does he do it? On his knees. It's a spiritual battle. Even at night, he would get on his horse, he'd ride around Jerusalem, Nehemiah would, he would assess the damage, and he wouldn't talk to a soul, he'd talk to the Lord first. I would ask you, do you engage your mouth before you engage your heart before the Lord? Spend time in prayer. This is a spiritual battle. This is what God's calling us to. The Roman equipment was, was a shield that was two feet wide by four feet tall. It was curved and square in nature. And you've seen in some of the movies that when the enemy would come, the entire body could get down behind the shield. They had the amazing techniques in the Roman military that they would interlock the shields and all the shields were interlocking. They would lock them together and even put a roof over the top of it and the fiery darts would be raining down on them and they would hit. And then as they had to reload their darts, the enemy would then advance. And then when the darts would come in, they'd shield themselves. And then they'd have to reload and they would advance and they keep closing the ranks. Now it's time for action and battle. And that's how we advance. There's times where we're offensive and there's times where we're defensive, but we're always protected. And the way we're protected in those times when they're raining down on us fiery darts and telling us we're worthless, you look at Sanballat and Tobiah, who, who were the two guys that were the naysayers to Nehemiah. The minute you rise up to do something for the Lord, Satan's going to send opposition. Fiery darts. A fox could jump over that wall. You're not going to accomplish squat. Who do you think you are to try to stand against such a behemoth as, as this military machine or this political machine that's been assembled against you? You are a pathetic pro-life loser. You're just a small-time pastor in a little valley in the middle of nowhere. 
And the more you talk about politics, the emptier the seats become. There's always room for the Lord. So what? It's what we do. You know, we, we think that if we can fill the building with a thousand people and somehow mobilize and listen, it's trusting in the Lord. It's a spiritual battle. The, the scripture declares we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is a spiritual warfare. And the shield of faith is what God wants us to employ. And that shield of faith, two feet wide by four feet tall, it was to be used together. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. When you mature, it doesn't mean that you don't have to go to church anymore. You look at, at, at 1 John, you, you've, got, you've got John the Apostle who's in his 90s writing this, and he says, don't forsake the fellowship. He's 90. He was boiled alive and survived. And he's on the island of Patmos writing the book of Revelation. And the man knows the importance of fellowship. You don't mature and then get to step out and watch Charles Stanley on television. You come to church and you invest in the lives of people. You take up a ministry and you work with people and bless them and get involved in their lives. You interlock those shields. You advance together. That's what we're called to do. And the Bible says, endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Peaceable, willing to yield. We advance the kingdom of God through the fruits of the spirit. It says in Corinthians that we're to examine to see if we are in the spirit, if we are in the faith, excuse me. It says in Corinthians, examine to see if you're in the faith, if you're of the faith. We look at these things in relation to our life and, and what does it mean if we're in the faith? There are some things that I would say simply in regards to that. You have to do some self-interrogation of your life. Observe your life. See if if if. You have the fruits of the Spirit reflected in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience. See if those fruits of the Spirit are abundant in your life. Look at 1 Corinthians 13 and see if that description of love fits your life. See if you're of the faith. Look at Matthew 5 of the Beatitudes and see if that reflects who you are. Look at the Ten Commandments and see if it's produced any fruit in your life. Follow the footsteps of Jesus and see if your life is one that reflects His own. Does your life look like a citizen of heaven? Are you sending your treasures on ahead? Or are you more involved with the treasures on this earth? Are you captivated by the baubles and the trinkets of this world? I would think that as you examine to see if you're of the faith, as it says in 2 Corinthians, this is, this is one of those areas where you would do that. But in regards to examining if you're of the faith, once you know that you're of the faith, then the fiery darts are going to come when you give your heart to the Lord. And those fiery darts are the fact that Satan is going to tell you that you're worthless and you, you, you cannot survive and that you have no place in the kingdom of God. How many of you, and I, I've done this a thousand times, I'll do it a thousand times more. How many of you have ever just said, God, I swear to you, I'll never do that again. Just raise your hand. I swear, God, I will never do that again. Raise, no, raise them up. I want people who, who are afraid to raise your hand, see that the others are so we can all do it together. Now watch this. How many of you, when you swore to God you'd never do it again, did it again? Raise your hand. You are worthless. What, what are you doing in the body of Christ? The church is a pathetic place. Amen. He takes the weak things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. There's only room in your life for one Christian. That's Jesus. In me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. When you raised your hand the second time, all you were doing was proving God's word to be true. God, I tried to do it on my own and I failed. I tried a physical battle and I got whooped. I got whooped. And the Lord says, trust in me. I will be your strength. I will be your joy. Sin is difficult to overcome and still has disastrous effects on our relationship with the Lord. It alienates us. It feels as though we failed and God wants nothing to do with us. But the gospel message is God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Romans 8, 1, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan's going to try to take you out of the game by telling you you're a loser. And we've covered this in the past. When he reminds you of, his, of your past, you remind him of his future. God holds nothing against you. There's no condemnation. You are not condemned. Jesus' blood covered your sin, past, present, and future. He will have mercy on you when you're honest with him. And when you're under fiery attack, 
You just declare the righteous life of Jesus because that's your righteousness. It's put on your account. It's Jesus' righteousness, what he did for you, not what you did. And that's the faith upon which we stand. Faith in his righteousness, not our own. Faith in his righteousness, not our own. It's important to understand that. We can have a faithful life because the one who provided the shield is faithful. God does it. God is faithful. Even when we prove ourselves to be totally unfaithful, God is faithful. God punished our sins in Christ so that we would be holy in his sight. You've been made right with God because Jesus shed his blood for you and for me. It's his righteousness. We fail, but he never does. In a moment, I'm going to conclude with that understanding. God accepts the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as sufficient to cover our lack of obedience, and we are made to be children of of Almighty God. God brought us into a relationship with himself, which can never be broken. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Psalm 91.4. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. Like a mother hen covering her chicks. Like a mother hen covering her chicks. The story of the farmer when his barn burned down and he was assessing the damage and he was sickened by it and there was, there was his prize hen, the burned carcass lying on the, on, on the ground of the barn, his prized hen, and, and it just broke his heart. And in frustration, he kicked that thing. And when he kicked the burned carcass of the hen out from underneath her wings came all of the chicks alive. That's what God does for you and me. His righteousness covers us. His blood has covered us. And that's the faith we have even when we fail. I want to conclude because we're limited in time and I want to pray. There's a passage of scripture I want you to turn to, but before we do that, I want to read to you out of Hebrews 11. Verse 8 says, By faith, listen, by faith, listen, by faith, Hebrews 11, 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. You look at this and you think that he's the father of the faithful. You think he's the father of the faithful. By faith, he obeyed when he was called to go out. By faith, he dwelt in a land of promise. By faith, he waited for the Lord. Now, I want to show you something about faith. Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 15. Excuse me, Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. We'll close with this this morning. Whenever we talk about faith, we always come to Abraham. He's the father of the faithful. And there's a couple of ways to look at when we need faith. There's three categories, three general categories when we come up against a problem. There's the simple, there's the possible though difficult, and then there's the impossible. But remember what we covered last week. The capacity, I should say difficulty, difficulty must be measured by the capacity of the agent doing the work. And when God is the agent doing the work, and talk, then, the, then the talk of difficulty is absolutely absurd. Nothing is too difficult for God. The power of Abraham is that, in this sense, he always looked at the power of God rather than the impossibility of the situation. He even said to the angel, or the angel said to him, excuse me, the angel said to him, is anything too hard for the Lord? Because the Lord said, Sarah's going to have a baby. She was in her 90s. She was in her 90s. You couldn't find a doctor would say that's possible. She's in her 90s. And the angel said, is there anything too hard for God? No, there's nothing impossible with God. Difficulty must always be measured by the capacity of the agent doing the work. What gave Abraham faith is he trusted in God and wasn't moved by the circumstances. He trusted in God and wasn't moved by the circumstances. Now, please listen. All of you raised your hand twice. And so did I. You swore to God you'd never do it again, and you did it again. What kind of faith is that? What kind of power is that? Right? It's fruitless. It's pathetic. Would we all agree? You and I are incapable 
of accomplishing anything apart from God. That's good news. Because with God, I could do all things. Amen? Abraham, look at chapter 15. Verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord, what will you give me seeing I go childless in the air of my house as Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Right now, he's almost 100. Sarah's approaching 90. The angel says this, God says this, and you just want to crack up. Then he brought Abram outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Wait a minute. First of all, I'm almost 100. My wife's almost 90. I don't have any kids. I'm not going to be living much longer. And you're telling me to look out at the stars and there ain't any city pollution of lights. There's a lot of them. Wow. You ever seen on a desert night the stars? Looks like the, 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 the heaven has holes in its floor. Oh. As it's twinkling and they're shooting and it's just a mass. It's beautiful. He says, this is how numerous your descendants will be. Oh. You know what he could have said at that point? <laughs> right. Are you kidding me? Like God said to Noah, Noah, build an ark, and I'm going to bring animals two by two. Build it where there's no water. Right. Huh? Preacher of righteousness, a hundred years, mocked and ridiculed while he's building an ark where there's no water. And Abram looks out at the night sky, and look at verse six. And Abram believed in the Lord, and God accounted it to him for what? The law hadn't been written yet. There were no Ten Commandments. What made him righteous? The law or his believing God at his word? Taking God at his word. Does the observation of the commandments make you righteous? No. For there are none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I had you raise your hand. You're all guilty. For those of you who didn't raise your hand, you're guilty too. You're just lying. How do we get righteous? We take God at his word. If you believe in your heart, confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to forgive the world that whosoever believeth in his Son should, have, should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's God's word. I have cast your sins as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, I will wash them as white as snow. That's God's word. It's not you trying and failing that makes you righteous or unrighteous. It's Jesus succeeding and you receiving his sacrifice that makes you righteous. You take him at his word. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Abram believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of, the, uh, of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought all these to him. Abram cut them in two with a chainsaw down the middle, placed each opposite the other, but he didn't cut the birds in two. And so these carcasses are cut in two and the blood is flowing between them. And when the vultures came down, which they do around dead carcasses, Abram drove them away. Get away from the carcasses. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a horror and great darkness fell upon him. And God goes to show him what was going to happen in, in Egypt and all these other things. And then look what he says. He says, you were going to go to your fathers in peace. In verse 15, be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, he talks about the fact that they'll be delivered. Look at verse 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces of the carcass. And on that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, a covenant with Abram, a covenant with Abram. And he says to your descendants, I've given this land. And he goes on to declare what he's doing for Abram. And he made a covenant, a promise. When God makes a promise, he always keeps it. Now, 
This is what we close with. You are going to be a heifer, and we're going to cut you in two. This will be the head. This will be the tail. Chainsaw. <laughs> Chunks flying. Blood flowing. Your carcass side goes on this half, and we're going to put you on this half. And between the two areas where I've cut you, the blood is flowing into the aisle. <laughs> Nasty, yes? Have you ever seen how much blood a bull pours out it's awful blood is everywhere and as the blood is flowing between the two carcasses the vultures start to fly abram is scaring them away now if you walked up on the scene and as you arrive you go this man has cut his animal in half there's blood in the middle he's arranged these in a very unique order abram what are you doing i am listen i am listen i am cutting a covenant with god And the way that you cut a covenant in the olden days is that you would take one of your animals, you would cut it in half, the blood would flow, you'd hold the hand of the person you're entering into a covenant with in an agreement, and you'd walk through the blood together. And what you're saying in essence to the person you're walking with is, if I break this covenant, may this happen to me. My life is on the line. I am going to keep my promise or I will die trying. Got it? So, Abram does what God says, cuts the covenant and says, okay, Lord, let's walk together. I'm ready to hold your hand. Let's do this. God doesn't show up. Abram's waiting. God, you told me we were going to cut a covenant. Where are you? Vultures start coming. Vultures, blackbirds, what do they represent? Evil coming in. He's flipping out. They're digging over. He's trying to brush the ravens away. I got to get this done. If I just try harder, I just got to work. I just got to keep evil at bay. And as he's working to keep the forces of darkness away physically, he gets exhausted and he collapses. Just like all of you said, I swear to God, I'll never do it again. And you did it again. You were exhausted and the vultures came in. You wake up in a bloody mess. And while you're sleeping, exhausted by your self-effort and your fruitless endeavor of fleshly-driven ministry and empty promises from a soul and a heart that can never accomplish it apart from God, the Lord shows up, a smoking fire pot. And while Abram's sleeping, what does God do? He passes through the pieces. And you know what he says in essence? Abram, I don't need you to keep my promises. I'm going to keep it for you even though you're going to fail me. I will never fail you. Amen? That's the shield of faith. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He passed through the pieces. He paid the penalty on the cross. His blood was poured out for the remission of your sins. No matter how much you fail, you come back to the Lord. You put that shield of faith up and you examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And then we finally close with this, Romans 14. Where does faith come from? Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. The world's gonna battle you, pummel you, and attack you. You cling to the Lord. You cling to that testimony of faith. That's the shield that protects you from the fiery darts of the evil one who wants to take you out of the battle. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Hey, Tony, do we wanna invite the worship team up? All right, let's do that. We'll close with a song because there's four minutes. We can do it in four minutes.